Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. We come together as your people called by your name. We seek you this evening. We leave behind the worries and the obligations, the distractions of our home life to come to this retreat and spend time with you. So in this sacred moment, we pray that you would meet us here in this place. And as you met Jacob in that wilderness, showed him a picture of who you are, we pray that our eyes would be open to know and understand your heart for us, your heart for this world, and how those two passions come together in the mission that you give to us in our lives. May our eyes be opened this evening to see the love of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross who died for our sins. And may that love be the source of our ability to love others and love this world in his name. For it is in Christ's name we pray. We're continuing on in this theme of called out. And we're looking at what this picture of the gospel is as it applies to our being set aside for God's purposes in this world and what it means to um, represent him to our generation. And uh, so last night we started by looking at our workplace and thinking about the implications of being a light in a broken place and um, working faithfully, representing Christ even in that brokenness, because ultimately it is he, he that we serve and not uh, the eyes of men, but the eyes of God who will reward everyone according to what they've done. And We look this morning at this picture of uh, the new name that God gives us through this calling of Gideon, who, hiding like a coward in a hole in the ground, was met by God and was given an entirely new identity as a mighty warrior. And the implications of our by faith, apprehending the names that God gives us, owning them as our own, and living in the power of that identity that the gospel gives us. Well, tonight, the Saturday night message, I want to be a little bit more overt about talking about what God's heart is for us as he calls us out into the world by looking at a very well-known passage, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn there uh, to that text. Or again, as I've been doing each message, you can uh, just follow along with the text uh, as it's uh, shown up here on the screen. And the title of the message tonight is The Messiness of God's Mission. <clears throat> and behold, a lawyer stood up to, up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Along with the story of the prodigal son, this is arguably the most famous of Jesus' parables. 
In fact, it is so well known that even those who don't attend church are familiar with the term Good Samaritan. Before we jump into the parable itself, though, I think it's important for us to understand what led Jesus to even tell this story of the Good Samaritan. We're told that one day an expert in the law approached Jesus with a question. Verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this sounds like a sincere question from a genuine seeker, but Luke gives further commentary revealing his motives. That he wasn't really so much interested in the answer as much as he wanted to test Jesus. In essence, to try to catch Jesus at his own words. And so Jesus replies to this question with a question of his own. Well, you tell me, you're the expert, what do you think the answer is? And so this man answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This answer that the lawyer gives is interesting because because it's probably the exact same answer that Jesus would have given if he answered it. It seems like this lawyer was familiar with Jesus' teachings. He must have heard Jesus' sermons. And so when Jesus threw the question right back at him, he answered as he assumed Jesus would have answered. And he does this to try to set a trap again for Jesus, for his teachings. This first half of the command that he cites is what is known among the Jews as the Shema. And it comes straight from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These are words that every Jew would have learned since childhood. They were, in fact, required to have memorized this verse, inside and out. They would have recited it on a daily basis. And so put side by side between Luke chapter 10, verse 27, and the Shema, you see how similar they are. And so it wasn't exactly radical, earth-shattering news for the Jews to hear from Jesus' lips that this is the greatest command that God gives you. But there was, in fact, something radical about Jesus' teaching. Because he adds a phrase to the Shema from Leviticus 19, verse 18, when he basically says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's taking something so sacred to the Jews, this Shema, and he's messing with it. He's adding to it. He's tinkering with what should not be touched. I think maybe a way to compare it would be, and this doesn't even go nearly far enough, is something like our Pledge of Allegiance, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This is something that every child knows because you say it every morning as you put your heart hand your heart and look at that American flag, but it would be as if someone added to it and go bears, (laughs) right? I mean, if you're in Chicago, you may clap, okay? But if you live, if you lived in Green Bay, you would be spitting at this, right? You don't mess with the Pledge of Allegiance by tacking on your favorite football team to the pledge. This is what it must have felt like to these Jews, to have Jesus mess with the Shema. But by adding these lines, this last words, Jesus' message was very clear. Love for God is inseparable from love for others. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot talk about one without talking about the other. But I think this is precisely what irritated this lawyer, this addition that Jesus made. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. 
You got to understand the humor behind this. Jesus is saying, simple, isn't it? Just love God with everything and love others as well. And you're good with God. And in a way, the lawyer realizes the roles have been reversed. And Jesus has, in essence, set a trap for him. And that's why it says in the very next verse, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, yeah, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Do you see the back and forth that's going on here? It's like a ping pong match. It's like a game of gotcha. And Jesus says, go ahead, love your neighbor, love God with all of your heart, and you will live, you will have eternal life. And I think the lawyer realizes what's happening here. He's saying, Jesus, you know this is ridiculous. You know this is even unreasonable. No one can do this. No one can possibly obey this command. And so he says, you got to qualify your statement, Jesus. It's, a, it's an absurd statement. So tell me, who is my neighbor? Help me understand the reasonableness of your command by telling me who is it in this world that you're asking me to love. Define your terms, Jesus. It is in response to that challenge of asking to be defined who my neighbor is that Jesus launches into this parable of the Good Samaritan. The story begins with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The Jericho Road was a notoriously dangerous one with lots of rocks and outcroppings of, of, of caves and there's plenty of places for bandits to hide. And sure enough, this man is walking when he is attacked by a group of robbers who strip him and beat him and leave him basically for dead at the roadside. The literal word description used for this man is half dead. This is not the picture of a man holding his side with a few bruised ribs groaning. It is a picture of a man that has been so savagely beaten that he is now laying unconscious at the roadside for dead. And in time, a priest passes by the scene of the crime. And he strategically walks on the opposite side of the road so that he doesn't have to get involved with the situation. And a little while later, we're told that a Levite happens to pass as well. And he behaves just like the priest, walking on the other side of the road to avoid this half-dead man. Now, any Jew listening to Jesus tell this story would have immediately recognized what the issue is because both the priest and the Levite were servants of the temple. They would have immediately known that the issue was ceremonial purity because the law of Moses is very clear on this matter that if you touch a corpse, you become unclean for at least one week. You cannot enter the temple grounds. And these men may very well have been heading to Jerusalem to serve their time in the temple. And they would have very well risked disqualifying their ability to serve God at that temple if they touched the guy and shook him and found that, in fact, he was already dead. He's unconscious, but you don't know if he's alive or not. And so the argument was, just don't get involved. Just don't touch him. Now, here's the thing is, even if you were an Orthodox Jew, and even if you believed in this issue of ceremonial uncleanliness and temple service, I think there's something so utterly morally repugnant about the behavior of these two men that even an Orthodox Jew would have acknowledged it. And here's the truth is there's no love lost on these men because these priests, these Levites, were part of the morally bankrupt segment of Israelite society. These are men who basically use their wealth to purchase power. The typical Jew looked at these men without any sense of admiration or respect. And so you could almost imagine them applauding Jesus when he's telling the story. Amen, Jesus, high five. You nail these guys on the button, you know? You know, we, we know what these priests are like. And the Levites are no better. In telling this parable, Jesus was using a literary device, known in, a, a literary type, in those days, there was, this is actually a story form that is known in those days in which you basically present 
two shady characters followed by a morally upright character who becomes the hero of the story. And so Jesus is setting the stage for the entrance of a devout Jew, maybe a Pharisee, to come and rescue the day. But instead, the third person that comes into our story is a Samaritan. And Jesus could not have chosen a more offensive hero to his Jewish audience. And he knew it. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And they not only polluted themselves by intermarrying, but they were polluting the Jewish religion with all kinds of wrong teaching. They were dogs, half-breeds. And so Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero of his story. There is a rabbinical prayer found in the days of Jesus with the line that actually says in the prayer itself, Lord, I pray, do not remember the Samaritan in the resurrection. Now, I want you to stop and contemplate how much you have to hate somebody to wish them to hell as part of your quiet time, okay? Can you just stop and fathom that? Imagine if as a part of every quiet time you had, part of your prayer was a list of the people that you pray to God would not be saved. That is the extent of the hatred of the Jews for the Samaritans. In fact, when they wanted to hurt Jesus as bad as they thought they could, you know what they called him? A Samaritan. They used that like a slur, like a four-letter word against him. You see, by making a Samaritan the hero of the story, Jesus was pointing the finger right back at these self-righteous Jews. It is so easy for you to recognize the loveless, morally bankrupt attitude of your religious leaders, the priesthood. But you are utterly blind to your own lack of love for others by me highlighting the hero of the story as a Samaritan. And he's, in essence, Jesus was telling this expert of the law, The priests and the Levites may hide behind this lame excuse of maintaining ceremonial purity. But you are no better than them because you hide behind your ethnicity to hate others like the Samaritans. In contrast to these men, we find the Samaritan that goes above and beyond what anyone would be expected to do in the situation. He not only bandages the man's wounds, but he puts him on his own donkey, implying that the Samaritan walked while the wounded man rode. And then he rents a room for him in an inn and nurses him even further overnight, tending to his wounds. And then the next day, leaves a large sum of money to cover the expenses. And then even says, I'll even come back a little later. And if there's any further expenses incurred, I'll clear that debt as well. Through this example of the Good Samaritan, Jesus was in essence saying to this expert in the law, you are asking the wrong question when you ask, who is my neighbor? The question that you ought to be asking is, how do I become that neighbor like this Good Samaritan? You see, when we ask that question, who is my neighbor? What you're basically asking is, who deserves my love? Who deserves my love? And the truth is, that's how this entire world operates. There are people that you're supposed to love and people you have no obligation to love. This is why parents make such extraordinary sacrifices for their children, but it doesn't really catch any of our attention, does it? Because that's just what you're supposed to do. That's maternal instinct, right? That's why you take some friends out and pay for their lunch. That's why you give gifts to family members. But the love that Jesus taught his disciples is so radically different than the love of the world. Jesus taught that our love is not to be based on the worthiness of the one receiving it, but because we are people who have experienced God's love for ourselves. In other words, we don't just love our own based on a merit system. We love everyone because God's love is in us.
Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 46 says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now, can I just ask you to pause for a moment and challenge you that even if you have been a Christian for many decades, the radicalness of what Jesus is saying about the nature of kingdom love may have never really hit you full force. Do you really grasp the radical nature of what Jesus is saying to us? He is saying that pretty much every relationship that you have in this world ought to be characterized by love. And the truth is, I don't think we see others in that way at all. Not only that, I don't even think we feel an obligation to feel that way about others. I think the truth is, as Christians, we tend to be polite and civil to most people. We don't try to hurt them. But I'm not really convinced that as Christians, our fundamental stance, our approach to the people we encounter on a daily basis could be described as love. I don't know. Do you have a framed picture of your boss at work with a little sticky note on it that says, I love you? I doubt any of you have that in your cubicle. What about your neighbors that live right next to you in your neighborhood? Do you really feel bad at all if you don't love them? Is that a burden you carry? Is that I should love my actual literal neighbors? I think some of us may be getting a little uncomfortable with what I'm saying here, getting even a little weirded out. This picture kind of weirds you out a little, right? Thinking about coworkers and neighbors and bosses in your life in this way. But I think a big reason for this uncomfortableness that we have with this is that we have a lot of confusion about understanding what love really is. The way that we commonly think about love is love is the way that I feel inside, that somebody makes me feel inside. For example, we say something like, I love chocolate cake. And what you mean when you say you love chocolate cake is, chocolate cake makes me feel happy, right? But I would argue... Love is not the right word to describe your relationship to chocolate cake. What you really mean to say is, I desire chocolate cake. And that's one of the greatest sources of confusion in our life, is confusing desire with love. In the same way, if someone tells you, I love you, what it typically means is, you make me feel a certain way inside that gives me pleasure. And if this is our understanding of love, then it makes more no sense for us to convince ourselves that we love our coworkers or love our neighbors when we have no such regard or feelings for them. But Jesus defines love not as a self-serving feeling of pleasure that others give us, but as a selfless commitment to put their needs above our own. This is the love that Jesus calls his followers to demonstrate to this world. But how do we get a love like this within us? How do we become this kind of neighbor to others? I think that becomes the million-dollar question that is pressed on us by the story of the Good Samaritan. Dallas Willard confesses, Some time ago, I came to realize that I did not love the people next door. They were, by any standards, dangerous and unpleasant people, ex-bikers who made their living selling drugs. They had never tried to harm my family, but the constant traffic of people buying drugs, a number of whom sat in the yard while shooting up, began to wear down my patience. As I brooded over them one day, indulging my irritation, the Lord helped me see that I really had no love for them at all. 
that after suffering from them for several years, I would secretly be happy if they died so that we could just be rid of them. I realized how little I truly cared for nearly all the people I dealt with through the day. Even when on, quote, religious business, I had to admit that I had never earnestly sought to be possessed by God's kind of love to become more Jesus. What an honest confession. And I think it's one that we would have to admit to in our own lives. If you had neighbors like this, how would you feel toward them? I don't think love would be the first word that comes to mind. I think you would probably set up a neighborhood watch. You would go to every homeowners association meeting and do everything you can to try to evict them. I think you would see them as the enemy, wouldn't you? And yet Jesus says, love your enemy. You see, I don't think we have really been struck at the core with the radical nature of Jesus' teaching when he calls us to love as he loves. Some Princeton psychologists did an experiment a few years back, and they used as their subjects Princeton seminarians. And they wanted to basically study the connection between a person's stated values and beliefs and their actions. So what they did was they got this cohort of seminarians together, and they divided them up by the survey that they did. What they did was they had each seminarian prepare a lecture and meet at a particular place on campus, and then they sent them to another part of campus to deliver that lecture. And in doing so, they were required to go through this narrow alleyway on campus that they couldn't avoid. And in that alleyway, they placed an actor who rolled on the ground acting like he was severely injured and asking for help. And they wanted to see how many seminarians would stop and help this man in distress. So they did the study and they tried to figure out what they could determine based on the nature of the students. And they thought, maybe the difference is why you went to seminary. For some of them in the survey, they said they went to seminary to help people. For others, it was totally different reasons, philosophical or whatever. Made no statistical difference. So here is this guy rolling on the ground. And these students are literally stepping over this body to get to their lecture. They couldn't determine anything that made a difference. And so what they did was they had half of them prepare as their talk a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Okay? So they were given like a week to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. They're there with their manuscript, and they're walking to the lecture to deliver a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And the majority of them walked over this body to get to the, to the lecture hall. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? In that study, only 16 out of the 40 students stopped to help this man. I would love to think that I would have been one of the 16. But I really don't know. But it's mind-boggling, isn't it? That you could literally be on your way to preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan and walk over a body of a person that's rolling on the ground asking for help. This is the astounding ability of the human heart to compartmentalize our faith. What it really means to live according to our stated beliefs. I think this is a bit of what Christ is getting at here in the story of the Good Samaritan. We are overwhelmed by the sheer command. And so we domesticate it. We qualify it by saying, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Who are the ones that you're asking me to love? Because I can't love everyone. I mean, that's unreasonable. That's ridiculous. The needs are overwhelming, so help me out, Jesus, and tell me who is my neighbor. Jesus is trying to get us to understand. It's not about the people that we are obligated to love. It's about what is happening inside us to make us the kind of neighbor that could love this world 
with the love of God. You know, when I was a missionary in Africa for five years, I have to be honest with you. um, One of the things that really fatigued me was the endless stream of people that came to our family asking for help. It was usually financial help. But it wasn't always. But I don't think almost a day went by in Africa where one of our neighbors didn't come knocking at our door or end up showing up in my hospital office asking for assistance. And after a while, it really wore me down. I mean, sometimes we're eating dinner. We're there at the dinner table and they're, they just knock at the door. And they see that, they're, they see that you're, they're interrupting your dinner. They don't even care. They want to come in and make their pitch as to why they need money. Young ladies, teenage girls who are about to be circumcised asking for help because they're runaways now. I mean, this is the kind of harrowing stuff that we were seeing on a daily basis. But here's the thing is, when we moved back to America, I realized what suburbia represents. This carefully orchestrated world of well-manicured lawns. And there's something so disturbing to me about suburban American life. Because what I realize is it basically, in our little bedroom communities, contains the need so we never have to let that touch us. Isn't that how suburban life in Chicagoland is? I mean... I drive out of my car, out of my house in the car in the garage. I drive to my church office. I do my kingdom work. I get in my car and I drive 15 miles or whatever back to my house, open the garage door and I shut the garage door and I'm back in my fortress. And I never have to touch a panhandler. I never have to come in contact with a pregnant teen or an inmate in prison. Because in suburban America, we've learned how to ghetto those needs in their own corners of our society. So that they never enter our subdivisions. And never intrude upon our tidy lawns and our well-manicured lives. There's something that grieves me about that. I'm sure there are so many needs in the Chicagoland area, but living in Vernon Hills, I would never know it. Because all I see are shopping malls and strip malls and movie theaters and restaurants. That's suburban living, isn't it? And it's like you have to go out of your way to just let the need touch you in our country today. During my residency years as a medical doctor, um, I was doing the teaching service, inpatient service in the hospital. I was asked to uh, see this patient and went in there, did the admission. Um, turned out he had a blood clot in his leg. The overwhelming experience of seeing that patient, though, was the odor that permeated the room. Um, his personal hygiene was non-existent, basically um, was pretty obvious that he was a homeless person. And so we got him on blood thinners, was able to get him stable enough to discharge him, and asked him to come see me a week later in my office. So he comes to my office and doing a physical, looking over him, And I don't know why I missed it when I did the physical exam in the hospital, but I noticed that his arms are completely scarred down with burn contractures. So I'm asking him, uh, tell me your story. What's going on here? And so he tells me his story. And he says, uh, you know, I used to actually be a pretty wealthy businessman 
in this community here at Champaign-Urbana. But I became an alcoholic. And I drank to the point where I lost my job. And then my wife left me, and she took the kids. And he said, I basically have nothing. I have nothing. I'm homeless. I live in one of the local shelters. And this is what the guy said to me. He said, uh, sometimes when the psychological pain of what I've done to my life is so great, the only thing that I can do to relieve that pain is to take my cigarette and burn myself so that the physical pain helps me forget the mental pain. I didn't even know what to do with a guy like this. So I just treated his blood clot and saw him for the next several months until one day he didn't show up for follow-up. Now, for those of you in the medical field, you know, if somebody's on blood thinners and they disappear out of your care, that's a very dangerous situation. But he didn't show up and he's homeless and I didn't know what I could do for him. Just a patient, you just write him off, lost to follow up. I don't know what got into me that day, but I said, I'm going to find this guy. I'm going to find him. And so what I ended up doing was I got in my car and I went to the homeless shelters that were in our community. And I said, does this guy live here? And I went to a couple of them, I think by the second one, one of the workers at that shelter said, oh yeah, he lives here. In fact, that's his cot. And he's just out right now. So I waited for about an hour for him to show up. And I had no idea what this guy was going to say when he saw me. You know, I didn't know if he was going to be embarrassed that I was seeing him at a shelter or what. But he walked through the door of that shelter, and he saw me, and his entire face lit up. And he said, hey, Doc, what are you doing here visiting me at my house, you know? And then he was so happy, he gave me a tour of the entire place. He goes, that's where we eat our food, that's where Joe sleeps, you know? That's where he's giving me a, these are our bathrooms, these are our showers. And he gave me a tour of the whole place. And I told him, I said, you got to come back to the hospital. You're on very dangerous medications, and we've got to monitor your levels. So you need to come back to the hospital. I realized that by visiting this guy at that shelter, I had crossed a line with him, that I wasn't sure I was ready to cross. Somehow, he now saw me not just as his doctor, but as his friend. And I wasn't ready for this. And he would come for his follow-ups, but he would also come when he was, didn't have an appointment. And he just was bored and wanted to talk. And my nurse hated it because he stunk up the whole clinic. And he said, guess who's here again? <laughs> Your friend. <laughs> and I'm sitting here trying to round in the hospital, and i got to come back and talk with this guy. Sometimes he calls me from a payphone, And he would say something like, Doc, I'm feeling suicidal again, and I don't know what to do. And I have to spend the next 45 minutes talking him down so that he wouldn't commit suicide. I'll be honest with you. This guy was under my care for three years as a doctor in training. And there were some days when I regretted that day I visited him in the shelter. There are some days I wish I never did that. Because that's the messiness of trying to help somebody, isn't it? You start to blur the boundary lines. And then after a while, you don't even know that there are boundary lines anymore. And then you're saying, personal space, personal space. But I I think that's actually precisely why we don't like to get involved, right? It's because we like our boundary lines. We like our personal space. And when you start to enter into the need of other people, we know it can get messy because it's gotten messy before. And I think there's this sort of self-protective instinct that causes us to say exactly what this man said. Who is my neighbor? Who are you asking me to help? 
Because I think the truth is to live out the kingdom and love like Jesus loves is going to get incredibly messy. And there are going to be moments when you say, I don't know where the boundary lines are here. And I'm going to tell you this, there is a good fight in that. There's something very beautiful about that struggle versus the typical bubble that we place ourselves in to shield ourselves from the pain and the suffering of the world around us. And I'm telling you this. This is not just a difficult thing. It's an impossible thing. None of us are that good. None of us can love like this. That's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If you have not experienced that love yourself, you are not capable of giving this kind of love to others. But I think ultimately what Jesus is inviting us to realize is you were once that person on the roadside left for dead when God came and rescued you. You want to talk about messiness? It doesn't get any messier than the cross, does it? Jesus sent the only Son of God sent to earth to die for your sins and mine. God did not withhold anything from us, but gave it all. He entered into our messiness and paid the ultimate cost to show us his love. He says, when you understand that love that I have for you, you can give that love to others. Let me just close with this. We'll wrap up here. I don't know if any of you know who this woman is. Her name is Norma Lee McCorvey. She is actually the Roe in the Roe v. Wade case. The famous case that made abortion legal in 1973. Norma McCorvey was a spitting atheist, hated Christians. And she was proud of the fact that it was her case that made abortion legal for millions of women in America. In fact, after she won her case, she would go on to work at an abortion clinic to help other women abort their babies. She proudly called Roe v. Wade my law. Well, over time, a group of Christians began to protest the abortion clinic where she was working. But rather than treating Norma Lee as the enemy, they began to love her. And so she would come out to the parking lot for smoking breaks. And during those smoking breaks, rather than hurling insults and spitting at her, these pro-life protesters began to love her and minister to her and pray for her. For months, they did this. Until one day, one of the seven-year-old daughters of these pro-life protesters invited Norma Lee to church. And she accepted the invitation. And a little while later, Norma Lee became baptized and became a born-again Christian. And today, she stands in the pro-life camp, speaking for the sanctity of life with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the love of God that is able to enter into the darkest spaces and change our world. Let's pray. I want to invite you to think about your life for a minute. Like I said, uh, having lived in Africa for five years, uh, you're, you sort of feel like you're on the front lines of, of the pain in this world. You're dealing with female circumcision. You're dealing with HIV AIDS. 
You're dealing with malaria that kills hundreds of millions of people. You're dealing with abject poverty, starvation. But what I find is life in suburban Chicagoland is really different. In our manicured subdivisions, in our little fortresses, it's like that Simon and Garfunkel song, Garfunkel song, right? I am a rock. I am an island. I touch no one. and No one touches me. And being back in America for seven years now after living in Africa, I start to wonder, you know, what's happening even in my life. I know that there's need out there. I just never see it. It's like Disneyland everywhere. Everyone looks like they're doing okay. Everybody is middle class. The pain never touches my life. And so it's so easy to ignore it. And I I think there is this inherent messiness to trying to love people that really frightens us. Because probably the truth is you've probably tried to love at some times in your life. And you know that sometimes it goes really badly. You're misunderstood or people use you. They abuse your love. All those boundary lines blur. And I I want to just invite you to sort of be honest with the overwhelming nature of what Jesus is teaching you. Because I think if it brings you to your knees, let it bring you to your knees because I think that's the starting point. Rather than being like this lawyer who, to justify himself, says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? There has to be some point at which I think we're brought to our knees and saying, God, this is impossible. You ask too much. I can't do this. And I think that's the starting point where God's grace can enter in and empower you. Maybe for you, the messiness is your parents. And you're just fed up with them, their neediness, their constant demands on you. Maybe for some of you, it's your in-laws. Maybe for some of you, it's your spouse. And you've had enough of your marriage and you've had enough of a deadbeat husband or a cold wife. I don't know where your messiness is located in your life. But I know this. The easiest solution is to wall off your heart and to shut down, to turn your back. That's the easiest way to protect yourself. And I think for probably some of you, it's just too risky to soften your heart again. Say, I'm not going down that road again. But the invitation of the Jericho Road is to see a world filled with pain and hurt and see a Savior there that wants to love them through you. And it's going to take an act of faith to surrender yourself to that work. Not heroism, but faith. Maybe that's the prayer that you need to offer to God tonight. God, even as I'm hearing this message, I know what you're asking of me because I've been running away from that for a really long time. Maybe it's a really needy friend from high school or college that has really fallen to the wayside and is really in a bad place. And maybe you realize you may be the only person to be able to reach out to that person. But the truth is you just don't want to get involved. I wish I could tell you that if you take a step of faith, everything is going to be easy. It's going to be all all right, but I can't. There is a messiness to the mission of God that at times makes you want to pull your hair out and say, I can't do this. But let your heart be broken by the things that break God's heart. And as you surrender your life to be used by him, lean on him as a source of your strength. And every time that things get blurry and out of focus again, look to the cross of Jesus Christ and realize that you were once that person lying half dead on the roadside and everyone else was walking by you. Nobody cared about you. Jesus Christ reached out in his love and rescued you. I want to ask you, do you know love like that? Because without that love, there's no way that we can love others. 
in the way that God commands us to love. What I'm asking you is not to domesticate God's love, but to allow his love to consume you. In Ezekiel chapter 16 are these words of the prophet Ezekiel that captures well the gospel. It said, and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, it says this, it's just talking about who we were in Jesus Christ uh, before we met Jesus Christ. And it said, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eyes pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured, and became beautiful. That's the gospel. What God says is when you were born, you were like an unwanted child thrown on the roadside. Nobody even cut your cord. No one gave you a name. They threw you away because no one wanted you. And I came and I saw you kicking in your own blood and I washed you and I held you and I said, live. Do you realize that that's your story and my story? the gospel story. That's the love that God showed you and me. And until we understand that, we cannot be agents of that love for other people. Would you just pray for a few minutes and just ask the Spirit of God to minister to your heart? Say, God, I just feel the walls of defense going up in my heart. And I want you to melt my heart. I don't want to be this cold-hearted person all my life gliding through life in superficial relationships. I want to love, and I want to love deeply the people you bring in my life. But I'm so selfish. I want my things. I want my boundary lines clearly drawn. But God, this night, I am inviting you to do that work in my heart, to melt my heart. Would you just pray that prayer before the Lord? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.